In this episode, Rebecca Weininger of the North Suburban Legal Aid Clinic interviews Brett and Eric, who work at RAMP, a nonprofit, non residential center for independent living that emulates the independent living philosophy with a mission to build an inclusive community that encourages individuals with disabilities to reach their full potential. Thank you both so much um, for being here. This is a podcast that is dedicated solely 100%. Um, to voices in the community um, that contribute to the well-being of others, particularly to survivors um, of domestic violence. Would you both please introduce yourselves? I'm, I'm the luckiest human in the whole world um, to be able to talk to Eric and Brett, but it would, uh, I would love to, uh, for you guys to introduce yourselves so that you have control um, over how you both identify. So Brett, could you introduce yourself, please? Yep, uh, my name is Brett Santiago, and I use she, her pronouns, and I am the OVW project coordinator for RAMP. Awesome. I'm Eric Brown, uh, pronouns are he and him, and I'm the education and advocacy coordinator for RAMP Center for Independent Living. Can one of you uh, just define RAMP as an organization? Sure, I, I can do that. Um, RAMP as a Center for Independent Living, our, our main goal is to really meet consumers that we're serving where they are and help them to become as independent as possible. Um, you know, help them to develop self-advocacy skills, to understand how to maneuver the system as someone with a disability and really look at the barriers that they're facing and, and help them to minimize or eliminate those um, so that they can live independently. How do you define disability? Sure, I, I can take that again. This is Eric. Um, I use the ADA's definition of disability, um, which is you know anything that limits one or more life function. Um, and and again, that's very broad, right? When you look at people um, and, and they look at their life functions, if something is limited, um, you know, to be a disability. So someone has a mental health diagnosis. Someone has a physical disability. Um, you know, really, our goal as a center for independent living is to, is to serve everyone. If you identify as having a disability or you have, you know, some things going on at life that, that may limit and you don't yet consider them to be a disability, you can still have a conversation. You, you may meet the ADA's definition and, you know, help people to understand that the things that they've been kind of struggling with, you know, that may actually be a disability and something that we can help them work on. How do you helps someone accept that what they're dealing with is in fact a disability that the challenge is that they are experiencing um the obstacles that they feel actually amount to a disability sure so you know again i think a lot of that is just sitting down and talking with someone and helping them understand you know, if they were given a diagnosis by a doctor or if they, you know, have had some struggles in school that, you know, they were they had a 504 or an IEP um, and just really kind of talking them through that and helping them to understand that having a disability is okay, um, that there's nothing wrong with having a disability. Uh, one of the benefits, I think, for working with Centers for Independent Living is 51% of our staff and board of directors are people with disabilities. So if someone comes in to work with us, 
uh, likely that they're interacting with someone who may have been in the same space that they've been in and may have, you know, faced some of the same barriers. Um, you know, so I, I think the biggest thing for me when I sit down with someone who is experiencing something that may be disability related but haven't yet had that, you know, aha moment for themselves, it's really, you know, putting them in a space where it's okay to acknowledge disability that, you know, there are protections out there for discrimination and things like that so that um, they feel comfortable having that, that title. Right. I think the interesting thing is some of us really like actually grew up with the ADA, right? That there was like a time before the ADA and now we're, we're, our, you know, my kids are growing up in a world where the ADA is, is completely accepted and that they can see in the universe um, and, and not only see, but completely expect the, the, at least the physical results of the ADA. We, we expect wheelchair ramps. When we as a school district here in Highland Park uh, needed to consolidate um, our school buildings, we, the first building that got shut down was the building that was not ADA compliant. And, and that, um, was an easy, was an easy decision. Um, and I think in, in TV and media, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more, um, at least a little more people, you know, representation of, of people with disabilities. My question is, um, what, what happens then as we, as a society get, um, embrace uh, and, and look for inclusion of people with physical disabilities, how, how do we take the next step in the, the not physical disabilities? Um, and, and then what, do, what, what obstacles are you seeing in particular for people with, uh, that, are, that are surviving trauma? The next step is, is, again, continuing that education, right? And really putting society in a place where we have to listen to people with disabilities and we have to listen to survivors. Um, that lived experience is how we're going to get to a fully accessible and equitable society. Um, and we, we really have to you know, put people in a place where they're comfortable telling their story or they're comfortable sharing that experience, you know, in a safe environment. And um, that's how we're going to eliminate those barriers. I think that, you know, we, we have to continue to highlight those things. We have to see more of it in our media. We have to see, you know, news articles done by people with disabilities featuring people with disabilities. We need to see more um, shows on TV that are about people with disabilities that feature actors who have those disabilities. I think the more that that we're, we're seeing it more that, you know, people with disabilities are the ones leading that. Um, you, you start to see some of those barriers um, go away. Uh, you start to see the language change. Like you, you mentioned that, you know, people are growing up now with the expectation of the ADA. I think the next step is really the disability community continuing to take ownership over our experiences and, and you know, demanding space at the table in all conversations that would have a direct impact on us. In the universe of people with disabilities, are there obstacles to accepting people who have survived trauma? Is there any tension between 
people with disabilities and people with disabilities who have survived domestic violence. You know, sometimes in communities, and, and I'm going to use the wrong word, but there are hierarchies. Sometimes in communities, there are other, you know, that human beings create others. Um, and, and, and particularly in oppressed communities where that, that have a collective suffering, um, that have had a collective series of obstacles like, um, like people with disabilities who go through life um, with, a, with, with a, a common obstacle um, uh, that, you know, that, that society has not made it easy for them to function in the universe. Um, and then you add another layer to that. Um, is there, uh, is there an acceptance? Like, you know, we're here, we understand that there's another, that, that you have another layer that makes your life even more difficult. Or is there like a, I can't, I have enough going on. Mm. I can't deal with this extra layer. So I think in the disability community, kind of like what you had said, there's absolutely like a hierarchy that's kind of created. Um, you know, you have people with visible disabilities versus people with the invisible disabilities. And I think there's a hierarchy in between those two um, groups within that community. Um, I haven't seen, you know, I think the first step is first uh, a person with a disability being believed that they are a survivor um i think i think there can be that feeling of a burden um when you are taking care of an adult with a disability and so sometimes um things that happen within like a family unit that wouldn't be accepted amongst other adults um, maybe is more accepted when that individual has a disability. For example, I think of like physical punishments, right? Like you wouldn't expect that amongst your adult children. A parent would never do that. But I don't think you see the same thing when you're still um, in the household as an individual with a disability. Um, like physical punishment is seen differently. Um, so you, you, you have that barrier already right there, um, with the general population and even people in the disability community. Um, but I don't know that I have seen personally enough to kind of answer that question. If there's a hierarchy between people who have and haven't experienced violence. Right. But can you talk about the about the relationships that you've seen between organizations that the, that you're forming, the relationships that are that, that you're building between organizations um, that are providing services to people with disabilities and, and, and people who are the survivors of um, domestic violence? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, working for our uh, disability agency, we have a lot of education around different disabilities and, you know, like Eric said, kind of meeting people where they're at. Um, we have a lot of education, but we don't have enough education around the trauma that people face and how not to re-traumatize people when, you know, we're providing those services. And so 
our agency has collaborated with four other community agencies that all deal with survivors in some aspect, whether it's um, sexual assault or domestic violence. Um, And we're kind of all meeting together and um, seeing how we can help each other, how we can, um, you know, influence practices and policies at agencies that, you know, typically deal with survivors and how to meet people with disabilities where they're at and vice versa. We are receiving the training that we need if, you know, a survivor uh, comes in and we're their first line. Um, We might be the first people who they've told, being able to provide those additional services out to other agencies that we might not be able to necessarily help with like orders of protection and things like that, Um, but creating these really strong relationships so that we can call over directly to the other agencies um, and, you know, do a much warmer handoff and, you know, collaborating together throughout the entire process. One of the things that is equally scary to me um, and amazing to me about the work that I do is what I don't know. Um, it terrifies me what I don't know. And then it also creates such amazing opportunities. Can you, what, what has been the most incredible thing that you have learned that you, you know, that you didn't know, but that has, that has really helped you in the work that you're doing? Yeah. Give me one second. Let me think about that because honestly, through this process, I have learned an abundance of information that I was not aware of. Um, firstly, I wish I had the statistics in front of me, but Eric, maybe you can help me out. Um, the amount of people who have disabilities who are victimized uh, versus people without disabilities is tenfold. I mean, I had no idea how prevalent um, victimization was in that community. And Let me ask you a question about that. Are you are you saying that, because I want to get to right, because this, this matters so much, are you saying that there is a correlation and causation between people with disabilities and domestic violence in other words that that there is their people are being victimized because they are disabled yeah absolutely i think it adds there's there's additional ways somebody with a disability can be victimized such as withholding somebody's medication that they need to live if somebody relies on somebody to get their groceries for them, if they rely on them for any type of self-care, if somebody uses a mobility device, all of those are additional ways that somebody could be victimized. Um, in a, and you're in saying a that that's community. actually what happens, that, that it's oh, not just absolutely. the potential for it, it, it actually happens. Absolutely. Like withholding somebody's wheelchair and they can't get out of bed. That absolutely happens, and 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 that and and that's and I and I, I, I it's really important to me not to um, be um, an apologist for for abusers. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding. This is this is something that happens because the person is 
abusing, not this, it's not like care fatigue or um, neglect, which is absolutely horrible and and repugnant behavior. I'm 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 using it as like a the legal term of abuse and you know an an, an intentional act that is happening. It, it, it's definitely yeah no it, it's definitely intentional. Um, as Brett, the examples that Brett gave are, are perfect examples. I, I know you know I, I think about too. Let's say someone has a personal assistant that's coming in and providing care to them every day to help them be independent. That person's in a vulnerable position. If that uh, personal assistant chooses for whatever reason to start abusing them, what are the chances that they're going to report that? You know, I've heard from people with disabilities who specifically said to me when we've had conversations about whether they're safe around their personal assistant or whether they're safe around whoever their inner circle is, the response I've gotten back is, well, if I report something like that, I would have to go to a nursing home or I will lose my independence. So there's this fear, right, of if this is happening and I report it as a person with a disability, do I stand to lose my independence by making this report. So they're they're put in the position of having to accept an amount of abuse as as a trade off for continuing to live independently. Yeah. In some, I mean, obviously, you know, those are an- anecdotal situations, but yeah, of course, um, of course, yeah, that that. You know, someone with a disability who's facing multiple other barriers to their independence, they're relying on someone to provide them with support to be able to be as independent as possible. And if that person takes advantage of that dynamic, yeah, that that thought process plays in, in the head of, you know, this shouldn't be happening, but that's my support system. So if I lose my support system, what is next? And, and you know, I, I think then we get deeper into the conversation of are people with disabilities believed when they describe something like that? You know, our, our society in a lot of ways doesn't view a lot of folks with disabilities as being able to make decisions for them for themselves and, and, and needing the help of others to make those decisions. So, you know, how much does it take for a survivor to one get to the point where they're ready to talk about it and then two you know if they have a disability and, and they're used to people not really listening to them or believing them you know they're, they're, they're kind of stuck in, in that cycle like like any survivor would be right and right. and i think the the additional barrier that exists for that person is making that decision for them might mean a change in their level of independence yeah, no, to, to Brent's point about, um, you know, the uh, statistics around uh, disability and domestic violence, uh, as she was talking, I pulled up from uh, NCADV, a, a quick guidance that they put out a few years ago. And, you know, people with disabilities, a higher lifetime prevalence of experiencing abuse than people without disability. Uh, people with disabilities experience violent crime at twice the rate of people without disabilities. Uh, people with disabilities are three times as likely to be sexually assaulted as their peers without disabilities. Those are just some, you know, statistics that were pulled from this study that they did. Um, just 
the amount of potential assistance that someone with a disability might need puts them at a more of a risk. I think too, you know, if you talk about some some members of the disability community, some of them, you know, really want that belonging, really want to feel part of something, you know, for, for whatever reason yeah. throughout life didn't feel part of something, wants to now and maybe weren't given the same opportunities and experiences that, that we were all given as kids to learn about those appropriate interactions and then, you know, find themselves in situations that they believe are okay that aren't okay. So, okay, I have 18 billion questions. Are you saying that as a society, we equate any disability with a mental disability? Because you were saying that they're not, they're not believed, that disabled people fear and, and, and most likely have had the experience <laughs> that they're not believed. Potentially, what? potentially, yeah. I, 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 you know, I think that, and you know, I, I know Brett and I have have worked with survivors, um, and, and I think there there is again, as this is dependent on disability, and there's a lot of things at play here. But um, you know, I, I've I've sat in rooms where survivors with disabilities have expressed what they feel, and I've watched the faces of non-disabled people around the room light off what someone with a disability is saying about that experience. I, I've been in those spaces and watched it happen. I, I can't, you know, as a person with a disability myself, I can't get into the mind of what someone non-disabled is thinking in that moment. But I've sat in those spaces and, and watched as someone has shared a story or as someone has expressed what they feel is happening. Yeah. And I've watched non-disabled people I think, and you kind of touched on it too with like caregiver fatigue. I think people sympathize to an extent with the abuser, especially if it's like a parent or let's say like a personal assistant, somebody who's kind of there helping the ins and outs and taking, you know, helping take care of um, some of the needs that the individual with a disability needs. And so I think there is some sympathy when the abuse comes from one of the caregivers. What kind of extra layers of support can be brought to bear for survivors with disabilities? Um, I think the biggest barrier is like what Eric was saying is like their desire to maintain independence. And one of those things is housing. There's not a lot of like opportunities for, you know, first of all, accessible housing as much as the ADA has provided accessible housing. It's just not very available still. Right. Um, and that prevents people from leaving an abusive situation because they're potentially their only other option yeah. is a nursing home, which takes away their independence that they, you know, are mm. wanting anyways. Well, and, and, and so much more than that as well, right? I mean, it's, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so much more than just their independence. I mean, it's their, it could be their complete identity. You know, we, we deal with that all the time because a person who is not disabled, who maybe is in terms of the clients that we have is a, is a mother. Um, and her concern about her, you know, exercising her legal remedies is kicking out, you know, the breadwinner, right? And so how will she feed her kids? How will she house her kids? And so if I say to her, look, look at all these shiny silver balls I have over here, <laughs> with, with, you know, that, that the law provides, uh, orders of protection and divorce and um, all of these wonderful things that I can do, she... of the time will say, that's great. How will I survive though? Um, Even if you get past the barriers of, will I be believed? And I see that as part of my job um, is to, is to say to her, I believe you. Um, And it's, it is, it is my responsibility um, to help you know that um, you will be believed. Um, So even if we get past that barrier, which I don't always what what can you possibly say to someone about those legal remedies and how valuable they are if you can't simultaneously promise that that if you exercise these you know if you if you are granted these legal remedies I can't promise that you're going to be able to feed your kids and, and that to me is 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 uh, you know the, the number one barrier um, what growth have you seen? in the community around sexual assault and and domestic violence? Vocabulary in terms of opportunities to talk about it? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is when we see the organizations that do that work, specifically outreaching to members of the disability community and, you know, specifically adding accessibility features to marketing or, uh, you know, making sure that someone's reasonable accommodation needs are met in an interaction. Those positive interactions are going to result in more people with disabilities being willing to talk about their experiences and and receive support. Uh, You know, I know when I first started working in this space, I was working with Jen Cachapalia at the mayor's office here in Rockford, and, you know, we originally sat down just to talk about accessibility. And, you know, I, I told her, if, if you want to have survivors with disabilities come to the Family Peace Center and receive services, you need to make sure that the Family Peace Center is fully accessible and meets the needs of people with disabilities who may come here. You need to make sure that there's reasonable accommodation treatment everywhere and uh, that you're willing to get a sign language interpreter and, like, you know, do the work to let the survivor recognize that they're sitting at a unique intersection and have potential other needs. Um, you know, I, I think as we've seen in our community, as we've seen agencies that, that do uh, DV work start to, you know, really look at that intersection of disability and domestic violence and really, you know, learn um, how to make their uh, supports and services accessible. I, I think we've seen more people with disabilities feel comfortable in those spaces talking about what they need because they understand that someone is there listening with an understanding of what they might be going. Is there a pipeline of 
people into like enthusiastic about knowing how to speak with survivors? Absolutely. With the the program that we are in, um, you know, we have five executive directors of agencies at the table, you know, all anticipating at the end of our grant program to change policies within each of the agencies to ensure that, you know, um, survivors with disabilities are receiving the best possible services that they can. What about specifically the caregivers, the, the personal assistants? Clearly, people don't walk in to, to, to interview for those positions with some sort of badge that says I'm a potential, you know, sexual abuser. But how are those agencies responding to those kinds of concerns? You know, I think right now we're in a space where we're, as a group, we're identifying what all of those concerns are that we've kind of touched on. Um, ultimately, I mean, I would like to see it be a requirement that anyone who is going to go and be a personal assistant in someone's home in our state receives training on you know, disability awareness and on domestic violence and you know that way we're we're putting people in a position where they understand one potentially what to look for if it's happening and and, and they're the one who sees something happening but you know it, it comes to education and I, and I think that you know when when we get through this project i think we're going to have a a, a list of things that come out of it in our conversations with survivors and our conversations as advocates that Hopefully, we can work with our legislative uh, colleagues to to change the laws and, and, and make some improvements uh, to address the very barriers that we're discussing today. You guys do seriously heroes work. It it is so heavy um, because you see, this is not this is what we're talking about is is sort of this high level policy stuff, but you are seeing people who in the best of circumstances are struggling and there are a lot, probably a lot of triumphs you know there is a lot of hope and a lot of victory um there's a lot to celebrate but there's there's a th what you're doing is really heavy how do you take care of yourselves personally i think it's it's taking it's, it's the ability to understand that as important as these issues are to me and as much as I view them as a responsibility, I view, you know, minimizing these barriers as, as, as a person with a disability is my responsibility to eliminate barriers and help other people to be as independent as possible. But I, I think I also realize that I can't do that if I don't take time for myself. So it's really... You know, as heavy as all of that stuff is, it, it really is finding time to do something that is fun for me or do something, you know, just relax, finding time to kind of turn things off and, you know, go outside and walk around or, or you know, do something with family that um, can, can refocus me um, so that I can, when the workday starts again or when, when the next issue comes up, I can, you know, go at it with 
the fullest of my energy. You know, I think that it's important for anyone who's doing this work, right? It, it is a responsibility to serve the people that we're serving and to help them get through what they're what they're dealing with. But, but I think that just as much as that's a responsibility, we have to take that responsibility for ourselves to to know when it's time to recharge and and step away for a few minutes. Do what you need to do to make sure that, that you're always providing the best support for yourself and for them. Spending time with family or, you know, going outside and just, you know, taking in some fresh air and really clearing my mind of the things that are frustrating. Uh, clearing my mind of the, you know, the feeling of like constant barriers. And also, I think taking a, a moment to celebrate those successes that you talked about. You know, there are successes in this work. And and I think as advocates, we probably get so stuck in the barriers that we, we don't get a second to celebrate the successes. So, you know, I, I think I find myself really thinking back sometimes to what about those stories that, that started out really tough, but in the end, the result was great. And, you know, if I find myself struggling through a moment, going back to those stories and thinking about, you know, what did we do to help that individual or help that situation and that and how that felt and just kind of reminding myself that that's the goal at the end. Right. Yeah, I would agree with Eric. Um, I think my first interaction of, you know, working with a survivor who had a disability I think it impacted me more than what I thought it would. Um, but I think talking with peers was kind of about the situation and, you know, expressing some of my frustrations about how things are playing out was uh, very therapeutic for me. And then, you know, like Eric said, doing some of the personal care things and, you know, giving myself adequate time um, to you know, recharge, um, and we just had a lovely break over the holidays, so it was a great time to uh, recharge and, you know, kind of get myself amped back up to uh, really do the, the difficult work. That's really beautiful to hear, and I'm, I'm really glad that you honored yourself enough to actually take that time. What struggles do you guys have in your, in your work in terms of, um, there's vocabulary around disability, right? As a consumer of pop culture, the, the ways that we depict people with visible disabilities in pop culture is, at, at least, you know, up until recently, is, is more like, you know, there are all these obstacles and they overcome the obstacles and now, uh, you know, they're the most popular kid and they, and they scored the touchdown and they, you know, and, and, and now they're like, amazing and and their disability is actually this beautiful thing that's sort of in stark contrast to having survived a sexual assault which under no scenario is a beautiful thing and is in no scenario your superpower is not redefinable as you know a, a gift or something that makes you special in your work has there ever been a tension in the way that you've had to talk about those those two things that someone has to accept about themselves? Well, I, I think the first thing is, is we have to be careful with the depiction of people with disabilities anyway, right? right. Um, yes. 
I, I think that that the I, uh, unfortunately, you're right. We've had a we've we've been put in a position where it is shown as you know if you overcome this obstacle, you're amazing, and it's you know it's it's wonderful, and 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 yes, in a sense of like disability ownership, right? It's it's that idea of owning disability and really learning how to navigate space as someone who's disabled. My my issue when it comes to that is always who's telling the story. If right. someone with a disability is telling the story, then, you know, I, when if they say, you know, I overcame something and it, having this disability has made me a better person, great. But often it's non-disabled people telling the story. So I... I guess I would I would say to the just we need to get to a space in society where we're, we're listening we're listening to people with disabilities we're listening to survivors and, and we're letting their experiences really guide how we present these issues we we can have in the disability space we can have all the quotes in the world that say things like you know the the only disability is a bad attitude right we've all seen things like that that, that, that have makes come me want to throw um, myself out of the window. It, yeah, right. So, so here's the thing for me, though. As someone with a physical disability, I can have a great attitude all day. That doesn't make the stairs more accessible. Right, right. You know, so <laughs> I, I think, it, you know, we just have to, I, I think, be, we as a society need to do a better job of listening to lived experience and really presenting in our media, in our pop culture, the lived experience. So, not sugarcoating things, not making them, you know, everything is wonderful and this is a great story. Telling the true angles and really being led by the people who have had those experiences to tell those those stories. I think it can set up a bad expectation as well, especially if you put the individual was disabled due to the abuse. Like, how could that ever be somebody's superpower? Yeah, um, it sets up a bad expectation that somebody should feel positive about right. their disability. Right. Correct. And and then what do you do for the people who don't? And, you know, then that adds to you know that th that they're even more broken, right? That because they can't feel right. positive, and th and that that is unthinkable to me. What is your wish list? What's your wish list? What do what do you what do you want to change about the world? What would you change for survivors besides eradicating abuse? I often think about working myself out of a job because we redefine health. We redefine masculinity. We redefine um, what power looks like and feels like. So I'm working on those things. I want you to know um, that I'm working on those things. <laughs> What's your wish list? I think that's something that we share um, with the like domestic violence community is that's something that we at um, you know we often talk about is like working ourselves out of a job in the disability yeah. community. Like if all barriers were eliminated, we would no longer need to work. And that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, I think the top of my 
Um, wish list is just like talking about it more. Like I said, I didn't, before this work, I didn't realize, you know, at the intersect of disability and um, violence that it was such an increase. And I don't think people are aware of that. And I think bringing awareness to the issue can help, you know, more allies join and people feeling safe and comfortable talking about their experiences to not allow this to happen any longer. Yeah, and, and I, I think too, I mean, I'd love to live in a world where people felt heard and believed for their experiences all the time. And I, I would I would love to live in a world that accessibility and inclusion weren't an afterthought. That we just knew that we'd be interacting with people with disabilities, with survivors with disabilities, and the services and supports that, that are available are inherently inclusive and accessible just because the system was, was built that way. That's not how our system is built currently. So breaking down the current system and, and rebuilding them with equity and inclusion in mind, you know, people with disabilities are one of the fastest growing minority groups in our country and only one that someone can join at any time. I'd really like our society to truly embrace that and, and make sure that you know, everything that, that someone may go through is accessible. Um, you know, if you have someone who's a survivor who's reaching out to a shelter, that the shelter knows how to meet their disability-related needs as well, knows that, you know, they might need a sign language interpreter or might need access to a personal assistant or, you know, things like that. Just that it's not something that we as advocates have to remind people of, that it just, mm -hmm. it just is, that we exist in a world that sees all of us as equal and valid and and really embraces the idea around someone living their story and, and you know having their experiences and not putting on to those experiences what our belief is based on something that we were previously taught or saw in our media. I have two more two more questions and I promise I will let you go. I just want to spend um all the rest of my life understanding um, because I really want to be an advocate and an ally and I'm not yet, not because I don't want to be, but be because I don't, I'm not done learning. And I, I mean, I am an advocate and I am an ally. I, I'm just so ignorant and I'm, I have learned so much from you in this hour that I don't know. And I'm scared to, to say the wrong things and I don't want my own fear to be an obstacle um, to the potential that I could, that, that I have to be a better ally and advocate. I am very Jewish, very educated, Midwestern, upper middle class upbringing and wound up in an insanely abusive relationship. And when I was getting divorced, I had nobody to talk to because my peers didn't want to look at their own relationships not because they themselves were in abusive relationships per se, they just didn't want to think critically about their own relationships 
with any potential flaws. And I think that they saw talking to me or felt like talking to me about why I had chosen to get divorced, put some sort of responsibility on them or um, made them more likely to think critically about their own relationships. Um, And so nobody wanted to talk to me. Our survivors with disabilities less believed than people who are not disabled, survivors that are not disabled. So I, I don't know. I want, I want to be careful to, to make sure that, that we, we don't paint a picture that any survivor is less or more believed. I think more of it is just that we should believe survivors, right? Absolutely. Um, I just meant, like, what are the extra barriers? I, and, and so I didn't yeah. just, like, set up a comparison. I just meant, what are the unique barriers? I, I think for people with disabilities, it, it's you know, like we, we touched on earlier, it's that fear, like true fear of loss of independence. It's, I'll use an example. It was just a few years ago in our state that a bill was passed to allow people with developmental uh, disabilities to learn about sex ed while in their group home settings, right? Something that, that should probably be taught to people when they are young, like non-disabled people get taught in schools. And that, that's just something that, that hasn't been a priority in our, in our schools for kids with disabilities. And then, you know, just a few years ago, there was legislation to, to improve that so that people could get an, an equitable education on it. And, you know, and we, we listened to debate where there were legislators that we're fearful that if we taught people about appropriate touch and safety, that they would go out and have sex, right? So there was this fear of if we taught them to be safe, they're going to go out and do the very things and, that we're teaching them, and we don't want them to do that. So, so ableist in its approach, because the idea is that, you know, people with disabilities don't have any sort of, like, romantic sort of feeling. So instead of teaching them how to appropriately handle things, it was our practice to not. Um, obviously, you know, that, that bill passed, and now we are educating uh, folks with disabilities on those things. But I think those barriers exist, right? We live in a society that, that views, in a lot of ways, views people with disabilities as big children. D- doesn't doesn't see a necessity to educate people with disabilities in the same way that we would educate our non-disabled peers. You know, again, I've sat in rooms where survivors with disabilities have shared their story. And I've watched people say, well, maybe they meant that. And, and I understand that person may be trying to assist, but for someone with a disability, you know, that maybe they meant this may sound like maybe you don't believe me. I just, like I said, when we looked at our, our wish list, I, I want to get to a society where we don't judge people's story based on some preconceived notion that we have about their ability or disability, that we, we truly listen to and, and believe survivors with and without disabilities, um, that we, if there are barriers to them, you know, reporting and, and being heard, that we minimize and eliminate those barriers as fast as we can to make sure that, that we have a space where 
all survivors feel comfortable in the system that they can get the supports and services they need when they're ready to, to receive them. Yeah, I think, Eric, kind of going off what you said, you know, about individuals with disabilities receiving the education, I think um, one thing that's been brought to my attention, <clears throat> one of the stigmas about people with disabilities is that they're not sexual beings and people don't find them attractive and you can't assault somebody if you don't find them attractive when we know that that's not what assault <laughs> is about. But that is something that has been, you know, really brought to my attention that that is a very big stigma and that might be one of the reasons that people are less heard um, and believed when they have a disability because who would do that to you? Like, that can't be real. That is really heartbreaking. That is oh, absolutely heartbreaking. It needs to be, I'm just, I wish I had a wand. Yeah. Um, I care very much that um, this podcast be about you what would you have said that I didn't ask you? I think earlier you had mentioned like isolation. Yes, yes. Um, and one of the things too that I've learned, just like, an, like I said earlier, an unbelievable amount of different um, aspects of this intersection has been brought to my attention. But I think one of the things too, um, is that a lot of individuals with disabilities are isolated. You know, kind of like what Eric had said, they oftentimes will have one PA and it is a potential that that PA is abusing them. And if they don't accept the abuse, they have the potential of having nobody to support them. And I think that is something that I, I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but just ensuring maybe that places are more accessible, movie theaters not offering, you know, once a month captions on movies, more places that people with disabilities can meet, not just accessible places where only people with disabilities go. We need to have accessibility to every avenue in every place so that there is less isolation. And I think I'll speak directly to the DV and SA providers who might be listening to this podcast. Yes, please. Make your services accessible. Engage with the community to learn about what accessibility and inclusion means to them. Be broad in your thought around disability. Things like anxiety and depression are disabilities. So think about the people that you interact with on a daily basis, how many of them may, you know, mention feeling anxious, feeling depressed. Those are all disability related things. Really engage, learn who the leaders are in your community around the disability space, engage with them, um, learn about accessibility and teach them about domestic violence and sexual assault. Help them to understand that intersection. You know, Brett and I have talked about this entire time, how we've learned so much in our time interacting with the providers. Um, I, 
I think that, you know, we're in a unique space right now where the disability community really understands disability spaces and our DV and SA providers really understand those spaces. And, and we're, we're talking about the same, we're talking about the same people, right? We're, we're talking a large overlap. So really getting to know your disability service providers and, and disability service providers who are listening to the podcast, go get to know the people that work at the shelter in your community. Go get to know the heads of the uh, you know, domestic violence provider or the sexual assault provider in your community. Really learn from them. Take the time to have those tough conversations. You know, call out if you're getting a call from someone and some service they're, they're receiving is not accessible. Call it out. Go have that conversation. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, in, in my time working with the city of Rockford, we started with a blank slate of we're not going to, you know, belabor the point about anything that might have been a barrier before. We're going to address those and we're going to move forward. And and I'm, as an advocate, confident in saying that the city of Rockford understands the necessity for disability inclusion. Why? Because we had tough conversations. We had conversations about prevalence of domestic violence and disability. We had conversations about what happens if you don't provide effective communication to someone if they come in to tell their story. So be willing to have those tough conversations, but come to the table, both parties, come to the table with solutions so that we can really eliminate the barriers facing survivors in our community and really start to address the problems around domestic violence and sexual assault. And that their fears about looking ignorant and their actual ignorance is not more important than getting educated. I would rather have someone say to me, I'm going to say this, and I don't know if I'm going to say it the right way, than not say it at all. Right. I would much rather someone come from a space of, I don't know, than I, I don't know, so I'm not going to care. I, I want right. people who don't know, who are in that space of, you know, I don't quite get this yet. That's that's fine. No, no one in our, in our space is going to be upset with you because... You don't get it. You're, we're going to, I think, as an advocate, you know, it, I would rather I would rather spend all the time necessary to help someone understand the disability experience than to continue to have to push against the broken parts of the system. Yeah. If I can help people to understand why that system was broken and why it was built in a way that creates inaccessibility, that's a better use of, of the time, right? Because I can educate people and then in their spaces, they can help to maneuver the system to become more accessible and inclusive. Yeah. I mean, so, so the system isn't broken. The system is right. working exactly as it was supposed to it, work. Absolutely. It was, absolutely. it was built to favor people who aren't disabled. It was built right. to favor the majority, the white people, the people who felt the, the the most privileged it was built right. that way uh it right. needs to be dismantled 
It's yeah. flawed at its core. Yeah. At least that's what I think. I'm not trying to impose that on you. I just, no, I, I you're feel. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I it's, feel it's, it's important in my world to say the system isn't broken because then we look at band-aids. To me, right. the system is working exactly as intended. We need to, right. we need a different system. And we that's do. why do. the world that you envision, to me, the world where inclusivity isn't a committee, uh, inclusivity right. is what we do, isn't fixing the world. That is tearing right. down the system that we have and replacing it with yep. inclusivity. Yeah, yeah. We, we need an entirely new system. Um, and, and we need to have that, you're right, we need to have the, the honest discussion with the system that it was built this way, friends. It's time to break it down and rebuild it and, and address all of the things that weren't addressed the first time when it was built by people who didn't care. Um, we, we need, and that's, again, that's where the education sits, right? Is if I can sit down with a DV provider and help them understand the disability perspective, that means that the next time they go into a room, they can impart some of that knowledge onto the people that are in the room with them. And if they can sit down with me and help educate me on domestic violence and sexual assault, I can go into spaces that I'm in and, and help pass along those ideas. And, and we can start to, you know, build a new system and, and point out the, the pieces of the system that are, are broken and need immediate replacement right now. The way that I think about this is when you walk up to a building that has a, a wheelchair ramp added onto it, Yep. versus a building where the ramp is the building. Right. So right. we don't want the ramp built onto the building. We want to tear down the building and the building is the ramp. Right. Right. Fully inclusive from the beginning. Right. Um, not a different color, not a different material. Right. We want it so that the expectation when you, there's, there's just no difference. We're all taking the same route to the same place. Absolutely. I've learned a lot and I'm sorry for the things that I got wrong. I'm going to keep trying, but is there anything else um, that I can listen to right now? No, but I appreciate this space and this opportunity. I think it's really important. And, um, you know, I have worked and lived in the disability community my entire life and I continue to learn and make mistakes and like Eric said, very accepting of any mistakes that I might make and take the corrections with grace and understanding and, you know, just improving for the next time. It's, it's one of the most important things that we give each other, I think. And, and I think that I've become better at this since being a mom, which is, I really screwed that up, didn't I? I really wish I had handled that differently. Uh, I really looking forward to the next time when I get to do that differently. Um, yep. I really try to do that as a leader in my um, practice and as a mom and just out in the universe, because I think if we normalize screaming from the hilltops, our mistakes, we'll take more risks 
the right risks and we'll make a lot more headway, I think. So I uh, fall down publicly a lot. Um, I can't thank you enough um, for this conversation with me and I would love um, to keep talking in all the ways that are possible. Uh, we do a lot of grant writing. I would do anything to work with you um, and to keep learning from you and um, support you in all the ways. And I'm just really grateful that you exist in the universe. And I'm really grateful for your voices. And if there is anything that I could ever do to amplify those voices in conjunction with mine or at the complete exclusion of mine, either way, please call on me. I would do it in a second. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the same for you, if there's, if there's things that you, know, you need our support on, you need centers for independent living support on, please reach out. You know, that, that's how we're going to address these barriers is working together to eliminate them with the, the common goal of building an, a system that is inclusive and accessible. Let us know if there's something that, that you need and let's continue this conversation. I think that, you know, in the last hour, we really have scratched the surface of this conversation. So I, I think let's continue conversations like these and, and let's challenge people in the spaces that we work in to start having conversations like these. The, the more, you know, open, honest discussions like this that happen, the more inclusive we're going to see society become. Brett and Eric's voices are essential to hearing and acknowledging how much work we need to do to understand the reality of people with disabilities. People with disabilities lack representation in the media, in education, and in resources. They are victimized at much higher rates and report their victimization at much lower rates. Disabled victims of domestic violence not only deal with the trauma of the abuse they suffer, but they risk losing their independence and self-determination if they report abuse by a personal assistant and have no choice but to live in a nursing home. It is so important to hear Brett and Eric's message about people with disabilities' misunderstanding of what healthy relationships are because of lack of education, not being believed because of one's disability, and the importance of education and certification of personal assistance. Equally important, however, was our discussion about the importance of celebrating successes in this line of work, challenging others to listen to lived experiences, and the necessity of creating connections between service providers in helping professions. We are collecting as many voices as possible, and not any one of our guests is the sole voice of their community.